Chapter 39 The daffodils made it. Everything made it. The daffodils made it better. Rich golden clusters of them littered across the field and along the fencing. The crest of the hill traced such a gentle arc, what was left of Barry Heller had to stop to take it all in. There was all that sun and that sky, and more sweetly scented air than a happy man could hope for. His disposition was generally good, but that day, out foraging in the wild, Barry seemed to transcend happiness. He was genuinely moved by the play of light on things. Those aren't colors, he thought. They're revelations. He kneeled to listen to a bee buzz into one of the frilly orange heads in the carpet of flowers around him. He held his hands over the flowers if listening and feeling could be the same, an assimilation of the same thing, letting the petals tickle his palms and hearing the bees ministering merging all the while with the unsurpassable. In anyone else these sentiments might have seemed cheap, the flaccid, mystical debris of a man too corroded to know any better. Here was a man messing with flowers, opening himself to suggestions of universal oneness. But others had seen that oneness too. It's always the visionaries who show this life to be important and full of wonder, Barry thought. Perhaps it's only the visionaries who can calm themselves enough to see it that way. This much at least he hoped to achieve. Calmness, if not oneness. Barry may have been too far removed from secular society to be aware of its censure in such matters, but he was well aware of the helicopter not too far away. It had been circling all morning, and was the only real obstruction to innocence for miles around. A nearby lark trilled enough to dislodge the rumble of the helicopter in his ears. Shortly after, the machine moved to hover over another hill. Barry fell, cross-legged, onto the grass and shut his eyes. Dew seeped into the seat of his trousers. The bee he'd been looking at, having collected some pollen from its daffodil, rushed out, judging its path so finely it only narrowly missed Barry's nose. This is perfect, he thought. The way he'd come to sit, the dew, the path of the bee, it was a combination of events so trivial it could as easily have gone undetected. But if you open your heart, Barry thought, the many small signs of universal oneness are instantly revealed. These were silent streams of information, so easily missed, he realized, that he had to stay alert to catch it all, or fail utterly. He nodded with his eyes shut. This is good. Very good. There's no need to search for anything, he told himself, still on the grass, but not on the grass. He understood there and then that everything he needed was right under his nose. Barry wasn't himself. He knew he'd lost the power to be himself. He'd lost everything to do with himself. The most submerged feelings he ever had were all that remained of his past. He continued to agonize over his family. It was as if he'd always agonized over them. He missed the tight togetherness of it and was sorry to have left them so far behind. He felt he was improving, though. He was still on the map, if it could be put that way. Say there's a map, 
thought. The United States of Barry Heller, vibrant place, center of attention. But over to the east, far beyond the oceans, there's an unnamed continent, hardly known to the wider world, as yet entirely unexplored. That's where he was. You'd need to mount a foolhardy expedition just to find this new landmass. If only I could take you there without frightening you so much, he thought. He recalled Anya shrieking at him and running scared. He knew he never wanted to see that again. Towards the end of these whimsical insights, Barry opened his eyes and smiled some more. It was time to move on. Like the bee, he had been out gathering sweet pollen for the nest. Having dragged a number of shopping bags crammed with the goodies he'd come across on his strolls, Barry decided to pick a dozen or so daffodils as well to cheer the day on. He didn't stop at a dozen. Barry picked all of them and had to string three new bags together. He'd taken to pulling his plastic bags behind him on a sturdy nylon rope he'd found nicely coiled on the back of a flatbed truck parked in a lay-by on the dual carriageway. Out in the real world, he'd become something of a local myth. His movements were being monitored by rumor. He would turn up in conversations impossibly distant, yet remarkably vivid. In pubs and post offices and local shops thereabouts, people talked about the caveman on the moor. His wild appearance might not have mattered in his natural habitat, but the grisliness of it had frightened certain settlers around the countryside, and they demonized him. He was part ape. He was the devil out late. In the shadows of nightfall, he was given the shape of a nightmare, dragging not shopping bags, but corpses in his wake. All this infamy for a man out searching for his soul. Barry really had no idea what a stir he was causing in a place still informed by suspicions of the supernatural. He was an object of fear for rural settlers who hadn't quite given up the older ways of thinking. After he'd finished bagging all the daffodils in sight, Leaving a near-perfect clearing, he trudged on up into the woods and over the higher hills. He'd seen long lines of those rural settlers, prodding the bushes and the high grass with their sticks back there, looking for something grisly, no doubt, and he didn't want any part of it. Chapter 40 The plaster on the walls had more cracks. Teresa only had to stare and they would appear for her, running into the corners of the rooms, along the low ceilings, behind the cobwebs where her mother hadn't dusted yet. All she could see were the imperfections now. She could hear them as well. The old place seemed to creak with the weight of every occupant it had ever played host to right back to its doomsday origins in some murky cultural episode when life was still primitive and punishments were absolute. Shuddering, she turned away from the process of her mind and fixed her look again on the policewoman staying with her. They were in the kitchen, too near the fog of the stove, practically nose to nose, as if they were about to have a duel. Teresa's question was blunt enough. Jamie had been missing for more than 24 hours. 
Blood had been found. Does this mean he's dead? Her question was driven home with the words, I have to know. You have to tell me. Emma Cox's only answers until then had been a silence, with all of the noises of the house they were in clawing at it. Emma managed to hold Teresa's stare, but she had no idea what to say. Along with everyone else involved, she knew that Jamie's prospects of survival diminished by the hour. They'd found his t-shirt. If the blood on the t-shirt was positively identified, their loss of hope would be even more complete, and the search for the boy may soon become a search for his body. All the same, while there was still even an atom of hope, Emma felt that there must be something good to fill the silence with. She held a moratorium on any kind of definitive pronouncement. She raised her hand to Teresa's elbow to comfort her by touching her. She felt restrained in so many ways and perhaps slightly out of her depth. Increasingly, her job was to mediate in a family that seemed to have no bond of its own. As far as Emma could tell, Teresa's family were doing their level best to pull each other apart. The creaking and flapping sounds upstairs were being made by Mrs. Johns. She was folding linen on the landing, insisting on calling it linen, never sheets. Mrs. Johns had pretended to be hard of hearing whenever Emma had tried talking to her. Within hours, Teresa's mother had taken over the running of the house. She liked to make it sound grander by calling it a household, and responded to the family's plight by being unnaturally stiff treating others as if they were lowly, in imitation of what she believed were wholesome values. Teresa's brother had arrived as well. Having closeted himself in a guest room, he seemed to want to do little else but pace the floorboards, drumming up his worst fears for the days to come. No doubt he would be considering how best to perform in front of the cameras, because Mr. Johns quite apparently was one for the limelight. He'd honed a jutting, I told you so, expression for each occasion any attention came his way. He'd already called through his first front-line dispatches to other members of the Johns family. Emma had tried to put a stop to it. She'd wanted to take his mobile from him, but he'd made a fuss. So she insisted on listening when he made his calls. Apart from anything else, it was the grim way he spoke to others about the situation that Emma didn't care for. She'd learned that Tony was five years older than Teresa, and he'd always met life with a grimace. He's a clay mold of his father, Teresa had said, in one of many simpering exchanges that if lined up would have stretched to the moon and back. With Tony, it was his cigarettes that were being lined up. He smoked incessantly. The tangy sulfur smells of his habit had already seeped into every corner of the house. Emma clutched at Teresa's elbow. She tried to explain. Nobody can tell you what's happened to your son, she said. I know it's hard, but try to focus on the facts. They're all we've got. There aren't enough at the moment to be certain of anything. We're certain he's been hurt, Teresa whispered. With nowhere useful to take the conversation, it was always going to be difficult to draw Teresa away from this line of speculation. Most injuries produce bleeding, Emma said, trying her best. 
It doesn't mean they're fatal. Teresa's breathing hardened. She heard her own panic in her breathing. In that short silence, with P.C. Cox's one atom of hope left, she thought she could hear everything. She heard Anya stomping down the stairs and making her way into the larder. She heard a couple of doors snap open and a hollow thud like a box being dropped. She heard Tony's wheezy cough upstairs and the click of a light switch as her mother walked down a few steps to see if Annie was up to no good. Always trying to monitor the girl when it was no business of hers. These were the noises that insinuated themselves at that moment. It was like being intimidated. It made Teresa cower inside just to register them. They were the bombs going off in her head. The heat of the kitchen stove was giving her a rash. Somehow she prevented herself from breaking up in front of the policewoman, who held on so stubbornly to the impartial, but could as easily have spoken the truth. It only had to be put into plain English. Yes, it's very likely your son is dead, would have been the simplest thing to say. What Teresa feared most was that they would keep Jamie's death from her until the last possible moment, and in the meantime she would have to suffer their glimmers of hope. Teresa hadn't heard everything yet. During that frozen interval, her mother had crept all the way down the stairs. As Mrs. Johns entered the kitchen, she said, What about putting some supper on? She ignored her daughter and the policewoman, standing so close to each other, and went to open the door to get a draft going. It was Mrs. John's alarm as she opened the door that made the other two look around. Mrs. John's had dug her hands into her hair, a wiry gray mesh. She was pulling at her hair. Her gaping mouth was the size of an apple. Her gasp for breath was long and expressive of the worst kind of horror. Emma Cox moved away from Teresa. God help us, Mrs. John said at last. Teresa followed Emma to the door. Her mother had grabbed a broom and was standing on the step, suddenly whacking the end of it down with all her might. She was yelling as she did this. Get out of my sight, you vile creature! By then, Tony, taking the stairs two by two, was thundering down towards the kitchen as well. Emma tried grabbing the broom, missing twice before she could finally get her hands to it. Mrs. Johns, she pleaded, please calm yourself. The tiny sparrow had been mauled and half-eaten. It was lying on the path outside the door in a pool of blood. A cat was making its escape over a low brick wall near where Teresa's car was parked. She got a glimpse of a carrot-colored tail with white patches flying into a bush. Tony had come up behind them. Christ, mother, he was saying, have a heart. But Mrs. Johns was too flustered. She felt moved to declare that if that devil of a cat ever came near them again, she would personally wring its neck. They shut themselves indoors with their raw nerves. Tony lit up his last cigarette. He was forced for the first time to stand in the doorway and smoke it. The sounds after that were perfectly ordinary and domestic, but in Teresa's mind they may as well have been stabs or insults. A door closing was like a clap of thunder. When the soup ladle clanged against the pot, Teresa wondered if her mother was doing it on purpose. 
The smell of turnips and cigarette smoke was truly awful. Ever since she was a girl, Teresa had wanted to get away from the smell of turnips and cigarette smoke. Now it gripped her again, as if it would never let go. I can't stand this, she thought, almost retching as she climbed the stairs, having to heave each leg up. Even moving had become too difficult, and Tony's the stale bread that goes with this meal, she thought. She could hear them gabbling in the kitchen together. She heard Tony say something, and her mother's typical response, some kind of quip. It didn't matter what anyone said, the answer was always a quip. Teresa wondered if she would make it up the stairs. A choice presented itself then. You can either collapse here in a fever of grief, or you can take those last two steps. Just two steps to climb, she thought. It was fascinating to observe herself at this point of no return. She felt like she was seeing herself stopping forever with just two steps to go. Only when she'd made it to the landing did she actually face the worst possible outcome, that Jamie was dead. She rehearsed the feeling silently, wondering if the reasons for his death would ever be understandable. Her mind went blank, but not entirely. She could look through the small window at the top of the stairs, far away to a dim spot in the future. She toyed with the idea that, given time, some good might come of all of this. It felt like a necessary thought. In the same spirit, Teresa decided she could be grateful that someone like Emma Cox was there, always trying to be considerate and sympathetic, and sometimes really hurting for the family. Emma's gestures were futile, of course, but that made it all the more appealing to Teresa's sinking heart. Cringing at her mother's foolishness, she put her face to the window and peered downwards, trying to see if the dead bird had been removed from the path yet. The way her mother had reacted, it might have been Jamie lying broken and bloody there. The idea of Jamie's death had struck Teresa with more virulence than she was prepared for. She closed her eyes and let her forehead thump against the window pane. This time the spectre was just too much. Somehow the sight of that torn-up bird had got to them all. Teresa listened for anything outside herself. She hoped to drag her mind away from the gloom inside her, letting the noises overwhelm her instead. She tried to think of each noise as a carpet ride that could sweep her out of danger. There was no music coming from Anya's room. That's when Teresa realized she could hear everyone apart from Anya. She was about to turn and call out, but now there was a shadowy figure moving around her car. She peered through the window. The figure was tall and stocky, a black shape against the darkness. It looked like it was about to climb over the low wall to get closer to the house. By the way the figure was scanning the house, Teresa knew this shouldn't be happening. Afraid for Anya now, making wild associations, she rushed down the stairs. In the face of this new danger, more fluid than she'd been all day, she called out, Anya! The restraint in her voice was unbearable, even to her. Even Teresa knew she could have shouted her daughter's name much louder at that moment. 
Emma came into the lounge to meet her, ready to restore calm all over again. She was shaking her head as if she understood what Teresa was going through, and it would be the simplest thing to reassure her. It's all right, she said. I know where she is. Once again, they were face to face, eyes hard and unblinking. It was becoming a theme. Through each of these poignant confrontations, Teresa was getting to know what lay behind the prettiness of the policewoman's face. Emma's voice remained even and well-intended. Anya asked if she could take the bird into the woods to bury it. You let her go off alone? Teresa could hardly believe her ears. It's all right. No, it isn't. Emma's smile was there as a balm to accompany what she had to say to Teresa. Listen, I know you've all been hit hard, but at the moment I think your daughter needs some time on her own. There's a man outside, Teresa said, watching Emma's faint smile begin to turn down. I've never seen him before, Teresa added, in order to get rid of the smile altogether. He's trying to look into the house. They opened the back door and walked out as a group, striding into the garden with Emma leading the way. It was nearly eight. The daylight had faded almost to dark. There didn't seem to be anyone about. It was probably only a journalist, Tony offered. Those journalists were never too far off. Some of them were camping along the lane near the entrance, settling into their vehicles for the night, Tony supposed. Emma produced a handset Teresa didn't know she had. She spoke into it softly. There was a crackle, then a male voice responding. Tony tapped Teresa on the shoulder. It's just another nosy reporter, he said. Teresa tensed, but didn't feel she had to answer. Her mother answered for her. Not now, Tony. I'm only saying, he grumbled. You don't want to get everyone excited over nothing. Mrs. Johns clicked her tongue. They're here to protect us from whatever it is out there, she said, and that was the end of it. Even though Teresa swore blind that she'd seen someone, and he'd seemed menacing to her, nothing happened. He was right there, she kept insisting, pointing at the brick wall and the woods beyond. Tony was shaking his head as he went in. For once he let his silence speak for him. At the door, Teresa managed to turn and say to Emma, What about Anya? Don't you worry, the officer said, calm as ever as they went inside. I made a promise to be back before dark. <laughs>